God, remember the number to call is Beer Belly 6345000. This is like the Grand Old Opry. I love it. I love it. These guys are great. They're my favorite. Unless you, you, Bubba, I'm giving you a mandate, camel train. Want me to teach it to you, I will. Well, you'll remember, book of Proverbs, we're in chapter 2. You'll remember that the last time, last week, we started chapter 2, and I, I laid out for you and showed you the eight things that will bring about the knowledge of God uh, in your life, if you do them. And I told you also that I think probably in my own life, with the Word of God and, and what I know about it or don't know about it, or <clears throat> I don't claim to know a lot about it, but I will say that probably everything I do know I attribute back to the day that I found that great passage, and it really changed my life of understanding what the Word of God was. Living your life by the principles and the promises of the Word of God uh, from the aspect of making decisions in your life. We talk about it all the time. Life is decisions. Your life is going to be filled with the choices and the decisions that you have to make, and it doesn't take many bad ones to ruin your life, and, uh, and we found that... Uh, whether the decisions are big and small, uh, living your life by the principles and the promises of the Word of God is the way to make them. These eight things that we talked about are what I think make Christianity and Christians what they're supposed to be. And uh, we saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, when in our introduction when we were talking about Proverbs, I showed you a great concept in Proverbs 1.8 where it talked about the instructions of thy father and the law of thy mother. And you remember I <coughs> took a little time and I explained how that worked for you and for me. <coughs> the instructions of the Father will be the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you have God the Father for us laying down the principles of the Word of God. But the law of the mother would be the Old Testament, and that is, as you're going to see today, the stories in the Old Testament supporting the New Testament principles. The Old Testament and New Testament go hand in hand. You remember when I, <coughs> when I used it, <clears throat> that example, I used it in the example of a mom and a dad in a family. The dad is the one who lays down the instructions, and the mother with the children is the one that supports those instructions, and together they work as a team. But I also showed you that the Bible works the same way. The Old Testament and the New Testament complement each other. They go together. And from a practical application, all of the principles that you're going to find that the Father lays out in the New Testament will be supported by the stories and the illustrations in the Old Testament. Instructions of the Father, law of thy mother. And today we'll see and hopefully understand why getting uh, God's mind, this knowledge of God, the wisdom of God that we've been talking about, the understanding of God is so vitally important. You'll also remember at the close of last week's message, I gave you uh, a key word found in chapter 2, verse 8 in that verse where it says, He keepeth the paths of the righteous and preserveth the way of his saints. It was the word preserveth. And we talked about how that God uh, wants to preserve your family. In the day and age that we live in, the family is under tremendous attack. In the day and age that we live in, Christian families have been fractured. It's, un it's unheard of in time when so many Christian families are in such desperate need and <clears throat> such desperate problems. Families that uh, the kids uh, grow up and go out back to the world. Uh, there's never been a time uh, you need to have your marriage preserved, your own life preserved. 
and then of course our ministry preserved and certainly last but not least your own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ preserved and we now understand that when you get these things when you understand the wisdom of God you get the understanding of God you get the discretion that comes with it and they preserve you in every sense of the word and today we're going to talk about when you get the mind of God when you get this uh, protection and, and, and this uh, protection that he gives you and the preserving aspect, you're going to see exactly what he protects you from and what he preserves you from. Now, so far in our study of the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> we have looked at two main characters. And up to this point, we've really built the book of Proverbs in our study around these two characters. The two character studies that really the whole Bible's built around. And you remember way back we talked about and defined what a wise man is. There's two basic men in the Bible. There's a wise man and there's a foolish man. That study begins in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs details out, and we went through them when we looked at it, nine characteristics of a wise man. You want to be wise, <coughs> hang out with people that have these characteristics in their life and find them for yourself. It also laid out a foolish man. And that foolish man, we detailed that out, and we saw that a foolish man has eight characteristics that <coughs> produce someone who is foolish. Really, it's a simple concept. A wise man is a person who takes the wisdom of God and applies it to his life. A fool is somebody who simply won't do it. And today, I want to introduce you to two more people as we move through this. Not only is the book of Proverbs and the Bible built around a wise man and a foolish man, but the book of Proverbs is also built around these next two people that we're going to talk about today and uh, who they are and what they represent and how they will fit right into what we've talked about last week and all through the book of Proverbs. And we'll see today why it is so vitally important to get the knowledge of God. And I'd like to take this morning and introduce you to our next two people that we're going to talk about that's found in the text that we're going to look at today. The man is the evil man and the strange woman. Two very important aspects that represent in the book of Proverbs that you need to understand. Now, I'm going to take a couple of weeks, <coughs> and I want to develop these, uh, and I want to show you some things very important that you need to see and understand. Understanding these two will uh, not just be about uh, the book of Proverbs, but it'll be about life and the issues of life and the decisions that you have to make. You'll also remember that when we had our introduction to the book of Proverbs, I told you how that uh, the book of Proverbs, like all the books in the Bible, have three distinct applications. Everything in the Bible will have three applications. <clears throat> this is not taught today, and most people don't understand about it, and that's why most preaching is very shallow, because they don't understand the three dimensions of the Bible. And I don't have time to go through this morning and show you how the number three in the Bible is the number of completion. And when you want to be complete in the Bible, then you understand these three applications. First of all, talking about the book of Proverbs here, when we see the book of Proverbs from a historical aspect, we now know what that means. Solomon was a real man who really lived. He had a real son. His name was Rehoboam. And Solomon writes the book of Proverbs to his son. First eight chapters that we've talked about, the first seven chapters, all open up with my son or my child. So we know historically that it's an accurate account of a real man, Solomon, who lived around 1000 B.C., who wrote to his son, Rehoboam. Now, doctrinally, that'll be prophetically. Everything in the Bible has a prophetic application. Something 
in the future. And, uh, and in this particular case, you're going to find that Israel, uh, uh, doctrinally, that this son is Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, you're told very clearly and plainly that in a national sense, in a corporate sense, as a nation, in a literal body of people, uh, not a spiritual body, a literal body, that Israel is God's son. So you find doctrinally God telling this to the nation of Israel. So in their journey in the Old Testament, they don't get messed up in all of the things that we're going to talk about. But inspirationally, the practical side of it, we know that because of the new birth that we're God's son. And from a practical standpoint, every verse in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible will have a practical standpoint, inspirational, how it applies to you. Most people, most pastors, most Bible teachers, <coughs> they'll teach you the inspirational. <coughs> they never, and, and many times the historical, but really the spark plugs of the Bible. And you know, you can have the fastest engine, the biggest, hottest engine in the world, but if it has no spark plug, you ain't going anywhere. And you can know all the historical aspects of the Bible. Many guys do. You can know all the practical applications of the Bible. Many people do. But the spark plugs of the Bible, the thing that makes the Bible fire, the things that make the Bible work are the doctrinal or the prophetic. And uh, all through this book, uh, and the Bible too, you'll find these three applications flowing together uh, as you read through the Word of God. And we'll examine the doctrinal today. That's what I want to look at. I want you to thoroughly understand how this fits uh, in a doctrinal format to Israel first. Then next week we'll come back and I'll put it in a practical application and a historical application and you'll see it. Now let's read our text today. Let's begin in Proverbs chapter 2 and we'll pick it up in verse 10 at the paragraph mark. When wisdom entereth into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the evil man and from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and they froward in their paths, to deliver thee from the strange woman, even the stranger which flattereth with her words which forsaketh the guide of her youth, and forgetteth the covenant of her God. For her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. That thou mayest walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of righteousness. For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it, but the wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for those that have gathered today to hear your word. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to preach it. As unworthy as I am to stand here and open up this holy book and to put forth uh, the holy words of God, I thank you for the privilege today. And, Lord, uh, let it go without saying that uh, without the Holy Spirit of God today, that nothing I have to say uh, can go forth and nothing that these people need to receive in their hearts can be received. So we ask you today to send us your spirit, to give us that teaching spirit that we have that we need, uh, Lord, that you'll take uh, all of the things and put it into our hearts and into our lives and then guide us to apply it into all the things that we do. 
uh, help our church, help the men and women who have uh, decided that this is their spiritual home, to raise their families and, and to uh, bring about uh, uh, the, the mission of God in their life through this New Testament local church. Help me always to be there for them as their pastor, always to lead them and guide them and, and bring them back to the book in every issue of life because there alone, Lord, lies all the answers. And we'll thank you today and ask your blessings upon this time. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, verse 10 says, when wisdom entereth into thine heart. Now, look at verse 11. Discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. Now, we've talked about understanding many, many times, and, uh, and so it's not new to you. But the concept of understanding is your ability to grasp the principles at hand in the Bible. Uh, understanding is your ability to grasp the principles that are in the Word of God and leads to the knowledge of God. When you have understanding, and you know the process, you get knowledge, you get wisdom, and then you get understanding. It's a building process. When you get understanding, you grasp the principles, that leads to your ability to have discretion. Now, where understanding is your grasp of the principles, uh, discretion will always be the ability to use and apply those principles in any given situation by simply understanding the situation. When you look at things in life, you're going to see it one of two ways. You're going to see it as it appears, which is what most people do, or you're going to see the situation as it really is. A, a great example of that is our, the world we live in today, our own country, the Middle East. We look at our country and we're faced with the government shutdown, we're faced with Obamacare, we're faced with uh, all of the seemingly uh, gridlock in Washington that nobody can get anything done. We look over in the Middle East and where this country was basically feared by other nations, now we're pretty much a laughing stock to the other nations. They know we don't mean what we say. Now, we, you look at that and you think that that's the Democrats' fault, you see? That's what the Republicans think. Obviously, the uh, Democrats think it's the Republicans' fault. And so you take one view or the other on that, depending on what your political persuasion is. Me, myself, I'm not political about anything. I think the Democrats are as big a crooks as the Republicans are and vice versa. I'm like the guy one time who put an ad in the paper. He said, half the politicians in the country are crooked. And he incurred the wrath of all the politicians, and they demanded that he print a retraction. So he did the next week. And the next week he retracted what he said, and he said, okay, half the politicians in this country are not crooks. So that's the way it works with me. <laughs> uh, I, that's where I'm at with it. Uh, I don't believe in a democracy. I don't believe in a republic. I believe in a monarchy of Jesus Christ being king. Amen. That's the government I'm looking for. I'm tired of a government that lies to you. I'm tired of government. I'm not talking about the one we got, all government. I'm tired of kings who, who reign over you. I want a righteous king on a righteous throne that make righteous decrees that everything goes across the board righteously. See? And it's coming. But when you look at the world right now, you don't necessarily see it that way. You see it as the mess that we're in, the dismal uh, future of, uh, of a what? $18 trillion debt that's going to be on around our neck that you know we were waving our little gonzo flags, American flags last night, and somebody, some astute person in this church, and church is filled with them, came over and asked me, does not, it not bother you that your American flag has a little thing made in China? <laughs> See? Now, it, it was a time it wouldn't have bothered me, but it doesn't bother me today. You know why? China owns half of the United States anyhow, so what's the point? They buy our debt up, up out of us all the time, and one of these days they're going to 
we're going to say we want our money, and they say, well, we don't have the money, and they say, all right, give us New York, give us this, give us that, give us this, and here we are. You say, that's the way it's going to work. But you look at the country, and you see it in that kind of state. But that's not how you look at it from the Bible. You look at it from the Bible, things as, as bright as the promises of God. There's nothing dismal about where America's at, if you understand your Bible. There's nothing dismal about Obamacare. I mean, it just has to come with a thing. The thing that makes it bright is all this has to happen for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and clean this mess up. So you look at things two ways, you see. And uh, understanding is your grasp of the principles, but discretion is your ability to apply the principle in every given situation and then understand the situation. Now, our next two people, one of them is found in verse 12 and the other one's found in verse 16, is the evil man and the strange woman. Now, the book of Proverbs doctrinally, what we're going to talk about today, the book is written to God's son Israel. We know that from Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, in a national corporate sense. And the evil man here and throughout the book, doctrinally or prophetically, will always be a reference to the Antichrist. You want to remember that. It's doctrinally, prophetically, it's Israel up against the Antichrist. And this evil man will always be the Antichrist in a prophetic sense. Now, next week when I show you the inspirational side and apply it to you, it'll be another, but this is the beauty of the Word of God. Now, the strange woman is not the girl you dated in high school that you're thinking about right now or your ex-wife. In some cases, that may be true. But anyway... <laughs> The strange woman here will doctrinally be the religion of the Antichrist. She's defined for you in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, where it says, Babylon mystery, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. She's a religion. And this is the Antichrist's evil man, his church or his religion. Now, the mystery that he talks about here. We're not certainly going to get into it today, but it will be a great Bible study question at some point. The mystery is, is how that the first time you find Babylon is the first Gentile kingdom found in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. The mystery is how does Babylon, where you find it in Genesis chapter 10, the first time, and the last time you find it is Revelation chapter 17 and 18 where she's destroyed, the mystery is, how does Babylon survive from Genesis 10 up through the time that we live in today? Where is she today? What's she doing today? And how does she get to where she finally meets her end? And, and that's the mystery. And it's a great study in the Bible, but not one that we're going to take this morning. You'll remember also that this is her religion in the Bible. is called Baal worship. Baal is the sun god. We talked a little bit about that. A Thursday night in the Old Testament and uh, this is what ultimately destroyed the nation of Israel when they rejected the instructions of their father God and uh, turned to Baal worship and uh, this happened for two fundamental reasons and I'm giving a little background here but it's a great background to to of understanding the way things are in the Bible this happened for two fundamental reasons that we're about to study reason one was the evil man the evil man will represent all the kings and the leadership of the nation of Israel that were wicked, that led them as a nation astray. You've heard me say it many, many times. 
and it is something that I live by and die by or will die by and believe every moment with every fiber I have. And it is that everything rises and falls on leadership. That is never more true than with the nation of Israel. When you gave them good kings, they were good people. When you gave them a series of bad kings, they were bad people. Never in the history of the world has a group of people been more dependent on the leadership that they had. And the evil men uh, will be uh, the, the, the men who, uh, who led them astray, uh, the bad kings and the leaders who led them away from God. The strange women will be the wives that they took from the other nations, and they were specifically told not to do that because what happened when they took all the, and I'm going to show it to you in a minute, when they took all those wives from those other nations, all those women brought their gods in with them, all the false gods, and Baal worship entered into it and infested the nation of Israel uh, and brought them down. Now, in your Bible, and you probably, I'm going to put some things together for you today, in your Bible, these men are represented and listed for you. 18 of them. I've told you before, and I've given them to you on Thursday night Bible study. I've taught it many times over the last, you know, 10 years we've been here and, you know, all that, that there's 18 men in the Old Testament that foreshadow doctrinally, prophetically, who the Antichrist is going to be. We call them types in the Bible, pictures in the Bible. These 18 men, by their lives, these 18 men, by the things that they do, the events that unfold in their life will, in a prophetic sense, foreshadow what the Antichrist is going to do, and they show you a composite of who the Antichrist is. Eighteen of them. Somebody says, why 18? Because his number is 666, and 3 times 6 is 18. Now you'll find the first one in the Bible is Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He's a type of the Antichrist. You remember, Cain has a mark, and the Antichrist has a mark. In Genesis chapter 10, 10, you find Nimrod. Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist because this is where the first time you find Babylon in the Bible. Pharaoh is our third one, Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 12. We know what he does. He persecutes the nation of Israel just like the, a Jew is going to be persecuted in the tribulation. What does God do? God, through Moses, a type of Christ, sends the plagues down just exactly like he's going to do it in the tribulation period. See, you learn what's going to happen in the future by what God did. Now, the Bible told us that. Paul said, the things in the Old Testament that happened in the nation of Israel were for our examples and our examples. He told us that. Most people don't pay any attention to that. The fourth one is a guy in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, and his name is Balak. And uh, he tries to destroy the nation of Israel, just like the Antichrist will do. When you get into the book of Judges, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, you're going to find a man by the name of Sisera. And Sisera, again, just like the Antichrist, tries to destroy the nation of Israel. You get to Judges 9, and you find a guy by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech is a leader of Israel, just like the Antichrist is going to be. He's called the Bramble, and he leads Israel astray as a type of the Antichrist. We get to the seventh one in 1 Samuel 12, 13. It, it's Saul. And Saul was a perfect example of the Antichrist because Saul is someone who tries to usurp the priesthood and, and, of course, God killed him for that. We come a little bit farther in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we have our friend Goliath. 
Goliath is a perfect type of the Antichrist. He's up against David, a type of Christ, and they fight a battle like the battle of second coming of Christ. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, yeah, a great study, a beautiful picture of that. He defies the nation of Israel. David stands up and defends Israel. It's all, it's all a great picture. You get into 1 Samuel 25, and you find a guy by the name of Nabal. And uh, he uh, takes a stand against David. And he's a type of the Antichrist. Absalom, David's own son, 2 Samuel 14, 25. He plots to take over the kingdom. He dies hanging in a tree, uh, just like Judas does. And uh, he tries to overthrow David and take the kingdom, just like the Antichrist is going to do. You have uh, Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. Jeroboam, he splits the kingdom. He splits the kingdom between the north and the south. He divides it, just like the Antichrist is going to do. And then uh, he follows that old concept, divide and conquer. One of the greatest ones, and we're going to talk about this in just a few minutes, is uh, that really mirrors our study in Proverbs is a guy by the name of, of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. We're going to talk about that. One that most people would never think of as a type of the Antichrist is Solomon. Most people would never equate Solomon with a type of the Antichrist. Solomon is the most unique man in the Bible because he's not only a type of the Antichrist, but he's also a type of Christ. And somebody said, well, what's that all about or how that can be? Because the Bible is showing you how close the Antichrist is going to be to the real Christ, except the only way you're going to tell him apart is by understanding the Word of God. God never violates his own principles. God never speaks outside the Word of God. When the Antichrist shows up, he's going to look like Christ. He's going to portray to be Christ. He's going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. The only way you're going to be able to rat him out is to listen to what he says, you see. That's how it works. You come over there in, uh, uh, in the great chapter uh, with uh, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. You'll find it 1 through verse 13. He's a type of Christ in every sense of the word. And then in verse 14, da -da 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 -da, verse 14, the weight of gold that came to King Solomon, guess what it comes out to be? 666. And from that point on, he's a type of the Antichrist. You've got to look for things like that in the Bible. 666 only shows up, I think, three times in the Bible. And it's very significant every time you find it. So you got Solomon. We're not going to deal with all that today. That would be another great Thursday night question. You got uh, the 14th one is, is, is Haman in Esther chapter 7. And he tries to destroy Mordecai, who's a type of the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 1, or uh, Dan, uh, excuse me, 15 is uh, I, uh, Isaiah chapter 10. Um, and uh, that would be Shennacherib. Shennacherib is the king of Assyria. And he comes down and takes the northern tribes captivity, uh, just like the Antichrist is going to do. Number 16 is Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 1. He comes down and takes the two southern tribes, just like the Antichrist is going to do. And then when you get into the New Testament, you have Herod. Herod's the Roman emperor, Matthew 2 and 3. He does exactly what the Antichrist is going to do, and he's in charge of the Roman Empire. And then the last one, the 18th one, is found in John chapter 17, uh, in particular, and that is Judas. Judas, there's only two times you find the word son of perdition found in the Bible. One of them is for the Antichrist himself. The other one is for Judas in John chapter 17, and there's a reason for that. But there you have the, the 18 uh, men that are a type of the Antichrist. Now, let me put it even together for you. When I gave you, uh, I think Bob Gregg, uh, either the last time or this time, when he's in charge of the prayer group, and I think he gave you um, an assignment to find foolish men in the Bible or find fools in the Bible. Well, 
these 18 men right here are the main fools of the Bible. They are the main fools of the Bible. Those eight characteristics I gave you of what fools are, you'll find in each one of those lives. So right there you have, and this kind of puts it together for you, right there you have these 18 men are the 18 primary fools in the Bible. Now you've got other men who are fools in the Bible and women who are fools in the Bible, but those are your basic 18 guys in, uh, that, uh, that are. And uh, by these 18 men and their actions and their attitudes and what they do with Israel, uh, they are a picture uh, and a type of the coming man of sin, and they form up a composite of him that you can understand. It'll tell you his race. It'll tell you his religion. It'll tell you uh, his desires. It'll tell you how he thinks. It'll tell you where he came from. It'll tell you all the things that you need to know, and specifically to zero in on what he's going to do. Now, we have here in our text an evil man. We know now the evil man is uh, doctrine the Antichrist. But then we also have the strange woman. And the strange woman we also now is, know is the, uh, is the religion that he has. And I, as I was coming through those 18, there's no two greater people in the Bible that illustrate this than the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab will represent for us the wicked man, and she'll represent the strange woman. Let me, let me read it for you here, and uh, let's come back here and, uh, and, uh, and look at it. Uh, back here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, if you want to follow along, verses 29 through 33. And it says, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, son of Omrah, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omrah, re uh, reigned uh, over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omrah, did evil in the sight of the Lord, above all that were, were before him. And it came to pass, if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel. Ah, here she comes, the daughter of Ethbel, a king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal, there it is, and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all kings of Israel that were before him. Now, here's a great example of the uh, instruction of a father and the law of your mother. Uh, one more time so you can see it. And, of course, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you have the principles about the man of sin, the Antichrist. Everything in there, the Father lays out for us. But when you really want to understand it, you got to go back to the law of thy mother and see the story here in 1 Kings chapter 17 and put it all together. Ahab is Israel's most wicked king. The worst king they ever had, according to verse 30 and verse 33. And he takes a wife, Jezebel, of the Zidonians. Now, I want you to notice this. It says in verse 31, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. In other words, he really doesn't look at sin as anything at all. It's a light thing for him to, to go away from the things of God. You know you find that in Christianity, and I know this is a doctrine side, but I can't miss some of this. You know you find that in Christianity today? You find God's people who claim to be saved, who find it a light thing to live a life outside the principles of the Word of God. It's incredible. But that's not what I wanted to show you. It had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he took to wife Jezebel. See that thing? Jezebel, B-E-L? That's Baal. 
When you find these names start ending in B-E-L or B-A-A-L or B-A-L, that's a reference to Baal. She's got Baal in her name. And look at her daddy. Her daddy is Ethbaal. He's got Baal in it. There are the Zidonians. The Zidonians were a, an absolutely wicked nation that was steeped in the worship of Baal, which we know as the sun god. And he takes to wife Jezebel, verse 31. And the union with King Ahab that he takes with Jezebel, when you get to Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 18, she now represents the religion. She's called the queen of heaven in Jeremiah chapter 44. She's called the, uh, uh, she's, she has 400 prophets of Baal, and she sets up herself up as the priestess over the religion, and Abraham, or Abraham, Ahab becomes the king. So you have King Ahab, who's a type of the, of, the strength, of the evil man, a type of the Antichrist, and then you have Jezebel, who represents the whore of Revelation chapter 17. Why do you think that when a woman catches her husband with another woman or whatever the case may be and, and, or someone who is, is loose and, and hangs out with, uh, it does, she's always called a Jezebel because it goes back to this right here. This is why it is two names in the Bible. Nobody ever names their kids. <laughs> one of them's Judas. The other one's Jezebel. I mean, uh, I wonder why that is. Those names do not fare well in our own world because they bring up something that everybody understands, at least fundamentally, where it is. She's the prophetess, 1 Kings chapter 12, of Baal worship that in time destroys Israel. She has 450 prophets of Baal, and they head up her church, 1 Kings 18, 19. And she has another 400 prophets that take care of the groves. Now, let me explain very quickly about the groves. The groves were like gardens of hedgework, and uh, you still see them today. And uh, they would, when they wanted to worship their gods or the sun god, they had these very elaborate shrubberies that maybe were, you know, 10, 12 feet high, you know, hedgeworks, grown up and trimmed, uh, very pretty, and you walked down, and there was a path between the two, and you couldn't see over them, and you walked in, and then they had little sections that went off into little areas there, and in those little areas would be a statue of the god with a little chair you could sit in or a bench, and you could worship your favorite god as you went down through there, and when you finally got to the end, Baal, the sun god, was there, and you made your way through from station to station to station uh, as you walked through that grove, and you worshiped the in-particular gods, and then you worked your way down to the big god, Baal, the sun god. That's what the groves are in the Bible. And you find uh, when the good kings come in, they rip them up, they tear them up. But uh, they're, they're an they're an absolute necessity for Baal worship. So now we see that doctrinally Ahab is an evil man, is the Antichrist, doctrinally, prophetically. Jezebel, our strange woman in the story, will represent mystery Babylon the Great. And this is the great sin that Israel falls into when as God's son, Exodus 4.22, they reject the instructions of their father, God, and the law of their mother, and go after Baal worship. And it's an incredible study in the Bible. Uh, the book of Proverbs will go into great detail on both of these people after we get past their introduction today in chapter 2. You're going to find them all through the book of Proverbs. So it's obviously very important that we get it down today. 
Now look at verse 10 and 11 here. It says, when wisdom entereth into thy heart and knowledge is pleasant to thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. Four key words here. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discretion. And this understanding and discretion will preserve you and keep you from the evil man and the strange woman. The Bible goes on and says in verse 13 that about them who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Verse 14 says that they rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. Verse 15 says whose ways are crooked and they, and they and froward uh, in their path. Verse 17 says which forsake the guide of her youth and forgotten the covenant of her God. That guide of her youth simply means that in the early years of the nation of Israel, God was right there. When they came out of Egypt, he split the Red Sea. He brought the manna and the quails down. He did everything. He stopped the sun in Joshua so they'd have a few more hours to win the battle. She had forgotten all of that. She'd forgotten what God had done and guided her. You remember when they come out of Egypt, how God guided them where he wanted them to go? They didn't know where they were going. God gave them a land, a promise to Abraham. They didn't know anything about it. You know what he did? He had, a, he had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was their guide from God. And in an inspirational way, and I keep, keep coming to jump back, back and forth, but some things you just can't wait till next week to say, that's what he does in your life and my life. That word of God is a cloud. or a, Every time Christ shows up, he's connected with a cloud. And the fire is the judgment that God has. In your life and my life, he wants to lead by the pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. That book. And if we'll follow that just like they were supposed to follow that, you'll get to where God wants you to go. But they didn't. And most of God's people don't. But knowledge and discretion will preserve you. And it says they forsake the God, uh, guide of their youth and forgotten the covenant of their God. You know, and like I said, a lot of Christians do that same thing, uh, and churches do too. Now, this is Israel's spiritual condition by, what, 600 B.C.? And yet I want you to understand, because it's easy when I start laying all this out, that you think of them, when I start laying out all this wickedness, that you think that it's, it's rampant in every way, shape, or form, and it is, but yet i got to have you know, they're very religious. If you walked into one of their church services, you'd think you were in a modern 20th century church today. They talked about God, but just not the same God of the Bible. They talked about all the same things, but it wasn't anything relevant to the Word of God. They, they have an altar, when you study the passages. They have an altar. They pray. They pray to God. They make sacrifices. They have Sunday services, just like we do. Uh, they have all of the things that we got, except there is absolutely no relevance to anything that has to do with God. All because that they have put on Baal worship is a, is a, like I told you, Solomon is both types. He's a type of Christ and he's a type of the Antichrist. And it shows you how close this was to the real thing. And you're going to find it today where people use the same terminology. Now we know that if you're a Mormon here this morning, I, 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 I don't mean to offend you, but uh, maybe if you get offended, you'll get saved. I don't know, but I know that. But we know that Mormonism is a cult. At least I thought we did. Amen. Thank you very much. Do you know today that they got so much flack for using the word Mormon? They got so much flack and got their rear ends kicked so much from being saying we're Mormons 
Now they've changed their name, and all through Lee Summit, all through Raytown, all through Kansas City, they don't call themselves Mormon anymore. They've got now a name that you'd never suspect that they're a Mormon. They talk about family values. Well, what, that's what people want today. They talk about uh, all of the things that you want to hear. But at the same time, when you get in very, very auspiciously, when you get into that thing, I don't know what auspiciously means, but I heard it on the radio this morning coming over, and I knew I was going to use it. <laughs> you, very carefully, you, you, you get into that, and without knowing it, you get hooked into it. I'll tell you the greatest guy on the radio that does it is Glenn Beck. Everybody loves Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck stands for this. He stands for that. He stands for that. He stands for that. Well, let me tell you what he does stand for. He stands for the Mormon church. And when you go to these churches and they call themselves, uh, they don't call themselves Mormons anymore. They call themselves by a blase name that you never suggest. Uh, it has Jesus in it. And you go in there to look just like this. They don't have all the goofy stuff that the Mormons have. It's a ploy to get stupid people who don't have discernment or discretion sucked in. And before it's too late, you're in. So that's what you got in Baal worship. I didn't just mean to pick on the Mormons, but uh, I mean, uh, but that's what you got. That's the way it works. Now, chapter 2, verse 18 and 19 says, For her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go into her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. This woman in her religion, her house, is a path of total destruction. Once you get in, you don't get out. Once you get in, you can't get out. And this is why you see, coming back to the practical side, once a person really gets into Jehovah Witnessism, you never get them out. Once a person gets into this occult, you never get them out. You never get them out. Why? Because you say, well, because if you notice, Babylon misreligion is the mother of all the false religions. It starts with her, that's why. This woman and her religion, her house is a path of total destruction and no one gets out alive. Now let me just jump for a side note here and allow me to jump again into the practical for just a moment with a person of enlightenment. Over the years, I've seen Christians, I say they're I guess they're Christians, the same way. The book of Proverbs is so clear and warns you over and over again about the people that you hang out with. You've heard me talk about it all the time. I've seen it 45 plus years in the ministry. I want to tell you right now, there are people out there, there are couples out there in this old world that whoever hangs out with them gets destroyed. Let me say it one more time. There are people out there and couples out there that when you join yourself to them, you hang out with them, you listen to them, you're guaranteed you're going to get destroyed. Their negativity drips from their lips like venom from the fangs of a rattlesnake, and they will bite you. And when you hook up and you spend time and you get involved, you're dead spiritually. They kill everything they touch. This is why, again, the Bible spends so much time on who you hang out with because you will become who you hang out with. This is why this Bible spends so much time telling you about fools and wise men and tells you to stay away from these people. They're fools in every sense of the world and they will totally destroy you. And they'll claim to be a Christian. They'll claim to love God. But if you watch very carefully, they always take a stand against 
real Bible Christianity. They always take a stand against real truth. They'll talk about the truth and blase people who can't figure it out and have no discernment. They'll say, well, they talk about God. They love God. They pray. So did everybody in Baal worship. What was your point again? There are people in this world that will tell you what you want to hear to suck you in, and when you examine it closely with discretion and discernment, they don't believe one thing about that book. Got to watch that. Now, that's extra. You don't have to pay for that. I'll just give you that. Now, look at verse 20 and 21 again. Verse 20, that thou mayest walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. Now in the Bible, you not only have 18 men who are fools, and you're told all through the Bible that not to hang out with them. But in the Bible, you're told in this verse here, in verse 20, uh, 20 and 21, that you're to walk in the way of good men. And not only do you have 18 men who are fools in the Bible, who represent the Antichrist, who when you see the eight things that are characteristics that I gave you in your life, you're to stay away from. But in your Bible, it also says now to walk the way of good men, righteous men. So you have 21 men who are types of Christ in the Bible. And those 21 men will represent the character qualities of Christ, and they'll represent the character qualities of the people you want to have in your life, and they'll represent the nine character qualities that I gave you in Proverbs. These are your wise men in the Bible, the main ones. There's Adam. There's Abel. There's Shem. There's Noah. There's Moses. There's Aaron. There's Joshua. There's Jacob. There's Abraham. There's Isaac. There's Melchizedek. There's David. There's Elijah and Elisha. There's Solomon, there he is again. There's Joseph, there's Jonah, there's Gideon, there's Samuel, there's Barak, and there's Hezekiah. Now, you heard me talk about over and over again models in the Bible. These are your models. Now, there's other men in the Bible who are good men as you can follow, but God gives you 18 primary men who are fools in the Bible and will fulfill every characteristic that you find in Proverbs of a fool. And then he gives you 21 types of men who are a type of Christ who will follow the nine principles of what real wise wisdom is, and you should put them in your life, and these are the people you should hang out with. It's that simple. If I want to learn about sacrifice, I'm going to study Abel. If I want to learn how to walk with God in a wicked world, I'm going to study Noah. If I want to understand how to be a pastor and to serve God, I'm going to study Moses. If I want to learn about the priesthood of the believer, I'm going to study Aaron. If I'm going to want to be a, a warfare and a, and a war, wage a war, a good soldier of Jesus Christ, I'm going to study Joshua. When I want to learn about faith, then I'm going to study Abraham. It's just that simple. When I want to study about learning the Word of God, I gave you this last week, I'm going to David. When I want to study the religious of uh, opposition I'm going to face and the battle I got to face with all the false religion. I'm going to study Elisha and I'm going to study Elijah. Uh, it's just that simple. When I want to, uh, when I want to uh, understand about being falsely accused and being clobbered for something you didn't do, then I'm going to study Joseph. It's just that simple. And when I want to study the ministry, I'm going to study Samuel. These are the men in the Bible who represent the wise men. 
And so you, you, just, you just can't go wrong. And that Bible says that we are to walk in the way of good men, righteous men. Verse 21 says, For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. Israel was told to follow good character. Israel was given as God's son the principles of a wise man and a foolish man, just like you and I are inspirationally. They saw every king that came along, they saw every leader, and they should have known what the Word of God said, and they should have understood how to deal with it. But they didn't. For the upright shall dwell in the land, and perfect shall remain, and the perfect shall remain in it. Now, doctrinally, that land there is the land of Palestine. That's the land that we know of Israel today that God gave the Jews back in Genesis 12, 13, and 14 when he gave Abraham the land grant. That's the land over there that the Jews only have a thumbnail on it. That's the land that for, what, 2,600 years, or almost 3,000 years, they didn't have a land. In 1948, they got the land back through the Belfort Declaration and the, and the, uh, and the thing, and, and after World War II, but it didn't, uh, it, they only got a small, uh, uh, small piece of it. That land grant was given to them, runs all the way from Egypt to the Ur of Chaldees, which is Baghdad, and runs all the way up to the southern end of Turkey there at Mount Iraq. That's the land grant given to Abraham. They don't have it, but they're going to get it. Now, when he talks about that the land, uh, that, the, that they're going to upright shall dwell in the land, that's the millennium. That's what we're seeing in the Middle East right now. That's what we're seeing American coming apart at the seams. That's why we're seeing this thing of, of we can't stop anybody from doing anything. Somebody wants to gas his people, we use harsh language. That's all the farther we're going to take it. We don't want, and, every, uh, and all the world is watching. And what they're watching is they're watching how we don't respond. And Iran is laughing up her sleeve saying they didn't stop the guy who gassed his people. They're not going to stop us when it comes to getting a nuclear weapon. And that nuclear weapon that Iran's going to get is for one reason, folks. And if you can't figure it out, then you're pretty dense. It's to go against the nation of Israel. And when that happens or gets close to that and Israel strikes first or strikes back, it's going to put this thing into the end and it's going to go from third gear to fourth gear and God's going to stamp down on the pedal and we're headed home. But that's where it's at. And then God comes back, he kicks a snot at everybody and uh, he, they get the land. They get the land of the second coming or go on out into the millennium and into eternity to keep that land promised to Abraham called the promised land. Verse 22, but the wicked shall be cut off from the earth. That means the millennium. And the transgressors shall be rooted out. Now, let me give you a couple more key words here you want to put in your Bible. When you find these words like cut off, rooted out, rooted up, or rooted from, or rooting around, whatever, in the Bible, it'll always be a reference to the context of the second coming of Christ and somebody going to the lake of fire or going to hell. In Job chapter, I'll show you a couple of examples. In Job chapter 18, verse 14 and 16, now this is talking about the Antichrist directly. It says, his confidence shall be, here it is, rooted out of his tabernacle and shall bring him to the king of terrors. It shall dwell in his tabernacle because it is none of his. Brimstone shall be scattered upon his habitation. Here it comes. His roots shall be dried up beneath and above him shall his branch be cut off. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn, second coming of Christ, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now, root it out. Anytime you find those words, context is going to be the second coming of Christ. You want to remember that. 
So as we examine this passage from the doctrinal aspect, here's what we see. This is very important for you to get it. You're not going to understand the practical next week if you don't get to understand the doctrinal side this week. Israel is God's son, told by their father, God, to get knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God. And when they did it, they'll get discretion, and that discretion will preserve them and keep them as individuals. It'll keep their families. It'll also keep their nation, the nation of Israel, God's main force of getting God to the world in the Old Testament. And you all know that. Two great identities in the Bible that God used to get his word of who he was to the world. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the body of Christ, the church. Where the Old Testament had a literal temple and all the world came to the temple, in the New Testament, it's a spiritual kingdom. Your body's the temple. You take the temple to the world. Just that simple. Just that simple. When they get these things, they now have discretion. I, I, I can't tell you how important that is for you, uh, and next week I'm going to show you the ability to do it. And this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding which leads to this discretion will keep them from the two areas that Satan will use to destroy them and take them away from God the Father and all that he has for them and his instruction through the Word of God, and that will be the evil man. Doctrinally, that will be the Antichrist, the devil, and the wicked men he'll use in their midst. Doctrinally, it'll be the strange woman who is the false religion, the false teaching who the Antichrist brings in when he brings all the religions together, which is exactly what he's going to do. And this is exactly what happened to them as a nation. You know, I've taught you before historically uh, about the nation of Israel, that there's four aspects to studying Israel. I, I break it down into uh, four parts that you can follow it. The first part is what we call the formulation of the nation of Israel. That'll be in Genesis. The second part is the calling out of Israel. That'll be in Exodus. That'll run up through up to uh, 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we start the third edition of Israel, and that'll be the establishment of them as a nation. This is where they get their first king. And then once they get really bad, and the bad kings come, and it all falls down from 1st to 2nd Kings, 1st to 2nd Chronicles, we have the fourth stage, which is the demise of the nation of Israel. And when God called them out in Genesis with Abraham and later in Exodus with Moses, he told them to be a separate nation. The greatest passage on that is Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 17. It lays it out in clear detail. He told them not to have anything to do with the other nations. He told them to circumcise themselves physically. That's the covenant given to Abraham of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. That made them different from all the other nations. He told them to cut their hair differently and their beards differently because he wanted them to be a peculiar people. He wanted them to be a separate people. He wanted them to look different on the outside. So in your life and my life, gentlemen, back over here for a moment, he, they got physically circumcised, you get spiritually circumcised. They cut their hair on the outside so people would see the difference. You're supposed to trim yourself on the inside so people see the difference. You see how it works? Theirs is a literal kingdom. Yours is a spiritual kingdom. That's how it works. When they left Egypt, they were told uh, only to marry within their own nation and to keep the strange women out. This is why when they took over a city, most people don't get this, when they took over a city, they were told to kill everybody and everything. They killed every man, they killed every child, they killed every woman, they killed all the animals. 
People look at that and say, well, wow, wow, well, God's really having a bad day today. Why did he do that? He understood. You don't understand. Those nations were so deep and so infested with Baal worship that it's absolutely taking in over everything and bringing anything in was going to compromise and in time destroy the nation of Israel. And, of course, they didn't listen. They struggle with it all through the book of the Bible. Moses had problems all the way back when they just come out of the land, when they made the golden calf and they're down worshiping it. And again, it was the mixed multitude that they brought out. Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, read it sometime. The whole chapter before Joshua dies is telling them that you've got to put away the strange gods if God is going to help you. And you know what they do? They keep ignoring what he's saying and saying, we'll serve God, we'll serve God. He says three or four times, you've got to put away the gods or God's not going to bless you and you can't serve God with them. They just ignore the putting away their gods and keep saying, we'll serve God, we'll serve God. They never want to deal with the issue. You really see it in Judges where how, how many, 13 times they get into Baal worship and, and oppressors come down and God has to raise up judges to deliver them. You see it in 1 Samuel with Eli's sons, called sons of Belial. They're the priesthood, and they're so corrupted. David brings them back on course for a little while with God in his word, but then after his death, Solomon uh, starts the final demise. Solomon starts out good. He builds the house of God. He has the wisdom of God. He writes the wisdom books in the Bible, or uh, many of them, and then here it happens. Now look at for a moment, I want you to see this. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. Go to 1 Kings chapter 11. I want you to see this. Now, here's where it all starts to unravel. <clears throat> and there's some great principles here. 1 Kings chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 1 says this, But King Solomon loved many strange women. There they are. There they are exactly. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and the Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Samson clave unto these in love. Now, this is where it all starts. This is a violation of Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth. There's Easter. We talked about it Thursday night. There she is in all of her glory. There's your Ashtar bonnet with all your frills upon it in your Ashtar parade. There she is right there. Somebody asked a question Thursday night. There it is. There she is all the way back in the Old Testament. Ashtoreth, the god of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his father. And Solomon built a high place for Shemosh the abomination of Moab, and in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he uh, for all his strange wives, which he burnt incest and sacrificed under his gods. This is where it starts. Now this starts the final chapter on Israel. Solomon brings it in, 
He violates the law, and it goes down from here. And it talks about, in verse 7, Molech. That's, you find that in the Bible, the fire of Molech. Molech was the fire god. And Molech was a big bronze god of image that they had fashioned with a belly that was hollowed out with two mechanical hands. And they built a fire in Molech's stomach. And it raised, and the thing got red hot. It was made out of brass. And the hands were mechanical when they cranked. And they had illegitimate babies to the sun god. And they, they put those little babies in the hands of that Molech fire god while that fire was burning. And they beat on the drums and had their religious service and prayed to God and did all the things that they did. They cranked those hands, and that little baby was thrown into that belly as a sacrifice. You find a little bit later on that the kings of Israel are following that. You ask yourself, in your own mind, how could a, back then, how could a parent do that? How could any parent take their child, their baby, and offer it to some false god? And, you know, for years I used to scratch my head about that, but then after about 15 years in the ministry, I saw God's people doing the same thing. God's people today deliver their kids to the world. They deliver their kids to Moloch. They deliver their kids to Asterisk just as they take them over there. There was a story in a paper a, a couple a, a, a weeks ago about a, a young man that was, that was killed tragically in a car wreck. He got out there after some party and was all drinking and drunk and, and went hill jumping and, and, and hit something and, and the car exploded and he got killed and, and it was a terrible thing. That kid had been to this church. That kid played on one of your volleyball teams. That kid came to this church. But the thing that pulled him away was other men, other kids who claimed to be Christians, who lived like hell, who did what they wanted to do, and they went with him instead of coming here. And he's probably in hell today. And on Facebook, after alcohol killed him, after he drank himself to oblivion when he lost control of his car and all those young kids were all drunk, you know what they do? Nobody learns the lessons. Nobody learns from the mistakes. On Facebook, all of his buddies are toasting him with beer, the same beer that got him killed. I'm telling you. Hey, I've seen parents weep when their kid committed suicide or their kid did this or their kid did that, and I don't say it, I don't ever say it, I do what I'm supposed to do, but inside my mind, inside my brain, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, you killed that kid just as sure as you put a gun to his head. Hey, as parents, you give your kids a message. As parents, you deliver a message to your children, and then your children take that message to the world. And when they're 20, 30, 25, 26, you actually see what message you delivered. Having kids, dad, doesn't make you a father. Having children does not make you a father. Anybody can get a woman and father a child. Having children does not make you a father. Taking responsibility for your children make you a father. Doing what the Word of God says. Giving them the message that they'll carry to the world. And parents, fold up, break up, quit going to church because the time the kids get 18, 19, 20, the message is clear. They're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're caught up in the world. And the parents are standing there with their face hanging out, wanting to blame everybody else. It's you and the message you gave them. 
Well, I slipped off the doctrinal, didn't I? I fell right on my bazina on that one. But since I'm off of it, no, I'm just. Hey, I'm telling you, man, you deliver your children. You bring them right in and put them in the hands of Moloch. There, you crank the crank, and you divide, and he devours them. All because we pretend we're something we're not. All because we want to pretend we, we believe God, we believe the Bible. But your kids see our lives, and the message we give them is the wrong message, and then they take it out to the world and live the message mom and dad gave them, and then we wonder why. And the message many times gets them killed. I'm telling you what, the fractured family today is beyond belief. Christian families, moms and dads who bought into bear worship a long time ago, oh, they still go to church, they still carry the Bible, they talk about everything, and they show up on Sunday morning and all the times that they're supposed to be at church, but the message to their children. And then they wonder why. They wonder why. They get the kids get to be 18, 19, and 20. They don't respect mom and dad anymore. They do their own thing. They live their own life. Mom and dad have no more recourse. They can't tell them anything. And it goes from one bad choice to another bad choice. And they stand around saying, gee, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. You built the high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. You went after Ashtoreth, the god of the Zidonians, and Milcam, the abomination of the Ammonites. We put all of those things in our life, and we live our lives separate from the word of God, and we think our kids don't see. I had a kid one time who was an alcoholic, and he was so bad he never got out of it. And, he, and I never lost track of it. I don't know whatever happened to him. But he showed there and told me that, and I, and I thought, you know, well, you got in high school, and you did this, and you did that. And, I, and that's where you got to drink. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I drank in high school, but I was an alcoholic long before then. He said, every night my dad would have two or three beers before he went to bed. And he'd go to bed early because they had to get up early. And when mom was over here and over there, I'd go over right there to that couch, and I'd drain the last few suds he left in that bottle. There you are, Dad. Congratulations. Father of the year. Now starts the downward spiral of Israel. The bad kings, the evil men, the Baal worship with the strange women. Solomon's sons takes over Rehoboam after Solomon's death. And he splits the kingdom, north and south. Jeroboam, Solomon's mighty men, one of his mighty men, take the northern tribe. And now instead of fighting against sin, against Israel, they fight against each other. Let me tell you something. That's why I'll always stand and always have men around me and women around me who will stand for the unity of this church. Because once a church loses its unity, it's on its way down. You have to be unified. And when he split the kingdoms north and south, the devil came in and he conquered. Instead of fighting the other, the sin of the other nation, now they fought each other. In 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, 
are a list of the kings and the men who destroy Israel. There's 19 for the northern tribes. There's 19 for Judah. Some are good. Some are terribly bad. But it's all over. Once a nation or a church leaves the book or a Christian leaves the book, you're done. By 2 Kings 17, 721 B.C., king of Assyria comes down, takes the 10 northern tribes into captivity. By 606 B.C., 2 Chronicles chapter 36, Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon, takes the two southern tribes. And Israel as a nation, Israel as God's purpose to bring salvation to planet Earth is finished. All by just two things, the evil man, the strange woman. They were warned not to get involved with over and over and over again. And there they remain, up and to including today. Only Jacob's time of trouble, only the coming tribulation period where they have their back broken and their will busted, will they totally return back to God. But today they're in total apostasy. Now, now next week we'll take the same passage and we'll study it from historical, which we pretty much laid out today, but we're going to really fall into the practical. And you'll see how, in a spiritual, practical way, the evil man and the strange woman applies to you as a Christian and to this New Testament church. And how the devil will use the same two aspects, the evil man and the strange woman, to destroy the church, destroy Christians, as he did to the nation of Israel. To destroy your family and destroy you. You know, when you look at Israel and the struggle they face, and then make the spiritual application to you and to me, you see what I say all the time, and I even told you already today, that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything. Everything rises and falls on leadership. God's structure of Israel was a monarchy, a king after God's own heart. The model for that is David. Every king you find always relates back to David as the model, as the standard. God's structure for Israel was a monarchy, a king after God's own heart. God's structure for the church is a pastor with a heart after God's own heart. And God's structure for the family is a father who has a heart after God's own heart. The nation of Israel's failure was simply a failure of good leadership. That's all it was. The devil's always going to be there. The evil man's going to always be there. And the strange woman's going to be there. There's never a time in your life where you're not going to have to face the world of flesh and the devil. The problem with Israel was not a problem with the devil. The problem with Israel was a failure of leadership within the ranks of Israel. The church fails today, has failed miserably. And churches fail today... <coughs> Not because of the devil, not because of bad people, not because of the times that we live in, not because of how hard it is. Churches fail today because of pastors' failure to be a leader from the pulpit. Amen. Fundamentally, that's the problem. And I'll just take it one step farther. The family, a failure of the family today is a failure of a good, strong leadership of a father in every sense of the word. If your children won't respect you as a father to do what's right when you tell them, and correct them, and I know there's times they'll get out of line, there's no perfect kids, and you've got to drop the hammer. I understand that. 
But if your kids won't respect that hammer <laughs> and respect the fact that you who you are and you got to drop it, how do you ever think they'll ever respect God enough to do right? They won't. Failed authority in their life by a failed leadership. And I'm going to show it to you next week. The message we deliver to our children, they take through their life and they deliver it to the others and to the world. And as I said before, having children does not make you a father. Having children is what makes you a father is taking responsibility for those children, doing what the Word of God says, producing the character qualities of wisdom in their life. We'll talk about it next week. Let's pray.